Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. We have this nice spring 2017 forecast from Jack Devine, who's founding partner and president of the Arkin Group. It's a very uh, uplifting uh, forecast. I was reading it this morning and learned about things like the fact that North Korea has already over 20 nuclear weapons in its arsenal and uh, can fairly quickly may develop a ballistic missile capability to deliver these weapons against our allies, including perhaps us in the United States. Um, Jack Devine is here with us to talk about this uplifting forecast. You're talking about the biggest uh, risks ahead for the U.S. economy. Uh, Let's start with North Korea. How big of a threat is this to the U.S.? Well, I think you have a a rare mix here. You have a um, arguably mentally disturbed president of a country or chairman of a country. Which which country are you talking North about? North Korea. Okay. <laughs> there's several there's several okay. out there but uh, and they have a nuclear weapon which I think puts them in a special category. You know, we've been fairly successful in the West preventing the proliferation of nuclear weapons. I remember Jack Kennedy thought we'd have 160 countries with nuclear weapons. The Brazilians, the Argentines, the South Africans all started nuclear programs. And then we were able to work it back with two exceptions, Pakistan and um, uh, India. So uh, North Korea, an unstable country uh, by anyone's definition, uh, and largely unpredictable, now has nuclear weapons and has uh, ballistic missiles. And the question is, uh, will they be able to develop the range in the next few years to reach uh, certainly the western part of the United States, and I think most experts would say certainly. They'll be producing the latest estimate I saw was something like 8 to 10 nuclear weapons right. a year going forward. Um, India, and again, these are rough estimates. They're not It's not intelligence. But India probably has 160, and Pakistan has 160. But if you start adding 8 a year to 20, it doesn't take long to become a significant nuclear power in the region. Right. Well, and you were talking about Iran also uh, heading toward a, sim- a similar path. Uh, Jack, you're former acting director of the CIA, and so you have a long history in being presented with severe and uh, potentially catastrophic risks. It, where we are right now, looking at the potential risks ahead, do you feel more worried than you have in the past, or is this on par with the normal risks that you saw as the uh, head of the CIA? I think when the Russians developed nuclear weapons in the post-war period, uh, there was a great deal of concern about whether we were going to go into a confrontation. But it settled down uh, fairly quickly with the exception of um, the Cuban Missile Crisis, where we actually had nuclear weapons in Cuba, which we didn't realize until the 90s that they had some some, uh, nuclear capability back then. The Russians did that close to us. But in the larger scheme of things, we had mutual destruction. And uh, the Russians, whatever we may think of them, I think behaved in a rational and fairly predictable behavior as we did. So the risk, while they existed, uh, 
I don't think most people lived in the fear that they did temporarily in, say, the early 50s as far as a nuclear confrontation. The unpredictability of the North Korea now has a uh, is is a as a new a new situation for us, and I think the possibility that they could use a nuclear weapon. We can't count on the mutual destruction formula to stop the North Koreans from using a, a nuclear weapon. So uh, how does trade fit into this, right? Because it does in the sense that U.S.'s relationship with China and with uh, South Korea and other uh, countries in the region, I mean, wouldn't that play into how this threat is dealt with? Well, I think sanctions haven't worked, I think, in terms of stopping them. I mean, clearly they're going forward. They've tried to induce uh, the North Koreans to be more positive at the table. You know, we withdrew nuclear weapons unilaterally from South Korea in 91. Uh, the South Koreans, with our encouragement or support, build a industrial uh, city, if you will, in North Korea. Um, the, the Chinese, we've talked to them often. Countries have sanctions in place. Uh, none of it seems to be deterring the uh, uh, the, North, the North Koreans. I know a lot of experts in Washington and government officials, and uh, I've read enough about it that many people are counting on the Chinese to fix the problem, that somehow they have you know, real access and could, uh, could muscle the North Koreans. I would uh, encourage folks not to be overly confident that that's going to happen. Uh, the Chinese have their own reasons why North Korea... Uh, why Korea uh, remains uh, should remain divided right. from their perspective. And uh, I think we're going to expend a lot of energy jawboning with the Chinese, and it probably is not going to make much difference. And we'll probably be back at the, the radio station talking next year about the North Koreans having greater missile capability and having 35 to 40 nuclear weapons. So I'm not optimistic about it. Well, one thing that, that you did sort of dismiss uh, was this idea that Russia was in some way conspiring with the current leadership and could uh, lead to something uh, very substantial. Uh, is, this, is this something that is a, a clear and present risk, in your opinion, in any way to the United States? I'm sorry, are we talking with Russia? Russia? Yeah, with Russia, with respect to its sort of oh, you uh, mean the, the leaking, hacking, yeah, the, the hacking, hacking issue, exactly. Yeah. yeah, what I said in the the forecast, and uh, I'm standing by it, is that the the allegation that Trump's campaign or he was uh, monitored for political reasons will turn out to be a goose egg, as will. Uh, the development of information that shows collusion between the campaign, not an individual, but the Trump campaign and the Russians to defeat uh, Hillary Clinton. I think at the end, you know, we're going to have a lot, a lot of smoke, little fire. Uh, there will be no prosecutions, in my opinion. Uh, there will be no actions taken against the Russians because of it. Uh, it'll be very difficult to understand why we're going to spend the next year doing this, and most Americans are going to scratch their head. But I do want to say the Russian hacking into the system is a big issue, but it's not the one that everyone's getting fixated about as it relates to the election itself. Uh, you know, we used to have what they called Moscow rules, where the 
we had the capability of doing lots of things, uh, uh, nefarious things to them and vice versa. I mean, we could, for example, counterfeit right. each other's money, and we didn't do that. Yeah. Okay. Jack Devine, thank you so much for joining us. It was really a pleasure speaking with you. Jack Devine, former acting director of the CIA and founding partner and president of security firm The Arkin Group, talking about his spring 2017 forecast of risks. Is it time to take risk or is it time to take chips off the table? Carl Eichstedt has uh, some perspective on this as senior portfolio manager at Western Asset Management, managing $17 billion, more than that, in his Western Asset Core Plus bond fund. He joins us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Carl, uh, thank you so much for being here. I want to start with emerging markets because this has been one area that has been surprisingly immune to any weakness or hiccups in riskier assets this year. Uh, So far, dollar-denominated U.S. Uh, dollar-denominated emerging markets debt has performed twice as much as U.S. junk bonds. Do you think that this is a sign to sell or or something else? Well, first of all, you have to remember that emerging markets did horribly in 2015 and 16. So some of this is just frankly a catch-up. Uh, I, I personally in Western Asset thinks that emerging markets still has more room to run, uh, certainly not priced at the huge discounts they were a year ago. But if you do your country selection correctly, uh, we like LATAM, Brazil, Argentina, uh, Indonesia, India, uh, we still think there's some outsized returns to come from emerging market debt. Uh, yesterday on Bloomberg Television, Ed Hyman of uh, Evercore Partners came on and said that China's a mess and at some point it's going to blow up. They have a ton of mm-hmm. debt, which is unsustainable. So, you know, China is one of the biggest developing markets. And uh, if it were to blow up, it would be potentially catastrophic for emerging markets. How concerned are you about this? Well, you, you hit the nail on the head. Your, your view of emerging market must come from a view on China. Uh, for example, Brazil, over half their exports go to China. So you have to have a view on China first before you make your view of emerging markets. Our view is that it's not a black hole. Sure, there are problems here and there, but it's still growing at six, six and a half percent. And put that in perspective, China's twice as big as it was 10 years ago. So six percent today is 12 percent 10 years ago. China adds the GDP of the Netherlands to the world every year. Yeah, but it does that with credit. I mean, isn't that concerning that they're sort of expanding their leverage by so much? I mean, that's sort of, I guess, at Hyman's point, right? Mm-hmm. Well, well, uh, China's in a very enviable position, unlike the rest of the developed world. They have a rate structure above zero, and they have a fiscal surplus. So as they have fits and starts, they are changing their economy from a more export-related to more of a Western consumption uh, economy. That's not a straight line. You're going to get hiccups along the road. They have these two tools that we don't have. All right. So uh, you think that developing markets still have room to go, that China, you know, potentially might see some growing pains, but in general is is rather benign. Is that no, I mean, I mean, we're not without concern, but the red lights aren't flashing. OK. So uh, moving away from uh, developing markets, just generally, do you feel like we are in a sort of benign phase in uh, the credit cycle in the U.S. and that U.S. high yield bonds can chug along, investment grade bonds can kind of meander in some kind of range? Or do you think that we uh, could be uh, in for some hiccups? Well, this is the big question. Everyone wants to know, where are we in the credit cycle? Where are we in the business cycle? We, Western, try to take a step back and look at each industry specifically and look at where they they fall on that circle. Take energy, for example. They just had their recession, right? Everything they do is to improve the balance sheet, you know, become more creditworthy. 
banking. Bank, uh, big banks aren't buying back their stocks, special dividends, reckless M&A. They're just coming out of their recession. But then you go around the circle and you get industries like telecommunications, pharma, hospitals that are re-leveraging the balance sheet. There are some scary signs. So we don't pigeonhole the entire corporate market at one spot on this circle, but really try to pick individual industries. So uh, what is uh, pigeonholed as being a particularly bad area right now? Well, I, I do think that telecommunications is in a is, is in a bad spot for the bondholder, re-leveraging the balance sheet, some M&A activity that may or not be useful. So you're talking like AT&T even? AT&T, Verizon, we're definitely short those names. All right. And uh, what about on the retail side? Are you starting to dive well, in? It may finally be the point where you may want to think about it. Um, our, our high yield analyst has a saying, uh, they are burning the furniture to save the store. So, you know, you have high yield companies selling anything that has any value whatsoever and what's left, not a lot. But you have to remember that the market has figured this out. So if you look at the high yield index, it yields about five and three quarters. The energy subcomponent, which gets most of the publicity for being, you know, higher yielding, six and three quarters. The high yield retail index yields almost nine percent. So at some point, we're going to have some value here. So we're actually starting to look at high yield uh, retail. All right. So you're, you're confident that perhaps burning the furniture will be the right way to go uh, to create value. Uh, what about cash allocations? Have you been uh, decreasing them and trying to deploy uh, cash given the somewhat benign, at least uh, economic backdrop? Right? Well, we are what I refer to as a value manager. So you have to have a fundamental view on the company or the, the, the interest rate structure, but you also have to be cognizant of where the market's pricing that security. Retail is a good example of that. I mean, the market's figured out that it's, it's risky today. Uh, corporate bonds have had an amazing run both high-yield and investment grades. Spreads are much tighter than they were six months, 12 months ago. Our view of the world is relatively benign, but being a value manager, we can't like corporate bonds as much today as we liked them six months and 12 months ago. So our client portfolios have been gradually de-risking into this bull market in credit. So real quick, how much has cash increased as a, as a percentage of your well, portfolio? Well, we don't keep cash. That's been redeployed into other areas, structured product being one of our favorites. All right. Carl Eichstead, thank you so much for joining us. Really terrific to speak with you. Carl Eichstead is Senior Portfolio Manager at Western Asset Management. He manages the more than $17 billion Western Asset Core Plus Bond Fund, and he is with us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. But right now, uh, let's check in with former U.S. Congressman Rick Lazio. He's senior vice president at Alliant Group. And uh, co former Congressman Lazio has had a great deal of experience with congressional no negotiations, uh, including those over taxes. Uh, so, uh, Mr. Lazio, I'd love to get your opinion just from the outset of what the biggest challenge will be for President Trump to push through any tax deal. Well, uh, thank you, Lisa. I, I mean, the first thing, of course, is, is that comprehensive tax reform at its most basic level is extremely difficult. That's why it only happens once in a generation. The last major comprehensive tax reform was signed into law by President Reagan in 1986, so 30-odd years ago. And, and, and why is that? It's because comprehensive tax reform has winners and losers, and the losers tend to fight harder for the things that they already have that they risk losing than the people that have the potential to to win. 
Wait, wait, so wait, wait, wait. Requires... Hold on a second. I, I wasn't. I, I'm trying to to wrap my head around what some of those ideas could be. So, can you give us an example of something that uh, certain constituents wouldn't want to lose that would be up for grabs? That would be something that they would fight hard for. Sure. The mortgage interest deduction, for example, uh, yes. uh, where the realtors and home builders and where they have got sort of institutional support in every congressional district in the nation. One of the reasons why Paul Ryan and other Republicans want to have a bill to the president before the August congressional recess is they don't want members to go home and get their brains brains beaten out uh, politically uh, at town hall meetings um, because of these Washington groups that have organized well and are pushing back. They'd rather have the vote have taken place that it's in the past and that there may be some grumbling afterwards, but it doesn't create uh, nervousness or weak knees on the part of members that they're going to count on for the vote. So um, th- that's an example of, of a, a potential loser in this, meaning that, that fewer people may be able to take advantage of the mortgage interest deduction if it is capped than, than exists right now. Okay, so, so that's, the- that's 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 clearly one reason. The second reason, of course, is that that uh, that Donald Trump has a a a different and smaller smaller political base than than most past presidents. And then, you know, most recently, of course, the defeat of the Republican health care bill um, creates even more risk now for tax reform. So uh, expand on that. I mean, how much of a how much damage was done by the failure for the GOP to get a health care bill brought to uh, the floor for a vote? Is this going to be potentially as damaging as some are making it out to be? Yeah, there's a fair amount of damage across the board here. Uh, there's, there's damage in terms of the president's credibility as somebody who has positioned himself as somebody that would take on Washington get things done, the can-do president, and and change the status quo, number one, that's in question. So he has lost some political capital very early on in his term. Number two, the Republicans in general, both on Capitol Hill and with respect to the president, have lost momentum. This sort of sense that you build on things, uh, you build on wins, and that people, members that you count on, lock in uh, more tightly when when you have had a past win and they expect you to win again and you want to be part of that. And number three, on the technical part of this, uh, the, the fact is that the that the Republican health care bill would have reduced the budget baseline for tax reform by about a trillion dollars over 10 years, which means that now Republicans have to find a trillion dollars more in offsets, uh, meaning to close loopholes, reduce deductions, credits, and other preferences um, if they want to want their reduction in tax rates to be budget neutral. So that puts all kinds of other things in play. And compounding this, of course, is that there is some question, particularly over on the Senate side, about uh, the border uh, adjustment tax concept which is another trillion dollars over 10 years that if that falls out. So all that together, it it creates a lot more headwind for tax reform. There are some people, and I think this is a fair comment, that that the failure of the repeal of Obamacare puts more pressure on Republicans, including very conservative Republicans, to come through for tax reform. 
Um, but I'm not sure that offsets the negativity that I just described. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting, the idea that because there wasn't a replacement for Obamacare, they're going to have to de- basically budget for it or account for it in their tax plan. Um, is there any issue with re- tax reform that is that has bipartisan support that they could start with? Yeah, it's if, if they if they you know you, you definitely want to regain momentum by by building some wins. Taxes, are, uh, uh, this is a tough area to to build momentum within because you want to use this reconciliation process. Democrats now feel emboldened and are less likely, I think, to come across right now and help Republicans bail them out of the hole that they have dug themselves into. There are some things like the medical device tax, for example, on health care where there was, uh, there was Democratic support. There is going to be Democratic support for lowering rates, uh, my guess would be, for lowering rates for uh, middle-income and lower-income Americans. Um, there will be some support, my guess would be, for some uh, adjustment in terms of the the extraterritorial taxes, right. the trapping capital overseas. I mean, even the, right. the Senate Democratic leader, Chuck Schumer, with Republican Senator Rob Portman, have been have been talking last year and uh, and are probably in, in basic policy agreement about where you know how to address that issue. Right. So there are component pieces right. both on the individual side and corporate side. I mean, the research and development. You know, unfortunately, uh, I, I hate to do this. We have to we have to leave it there. Uh, former U.S. Congressman Rick Lazio, senior vice president at Alliant Group, talking about tax reform in Congress. Catherine Greenfield is here with us. She's healthcare reporter for Bloomberg. Uh, and Catherine, you wrote a story that I thought was fascinating about the challenges that go way beyond what the government's healthcare plan uh, will be for these hospitals. Can you give us just a sense of what some of these issues are that are plaguing these uh, these hospitals? Sure. So thanks for having me. Um, so yeah, definitely the general sense uh, after the uh, GOP bill was pulled on Friday was that hospitals dodged a bullet. But um, you know, issues with Obamacare uh, are still out there for hospitals, um, and maybe uh, investors are realizing that. So, for example, you know, you still have the 19 states that didn't expand Medicaid under the ACA, um, who are really struggling with their uncompensated care costs. Um, you know, you still have millions of people uninsured, and uh, most hospital chains are uh, projecting flat admissions growth uh, for this year, which definitely won't help. Yeah. Well, I mean, zooming back, healthcare is a fascinating area because people say we don't want to lose our hospitals, and yet hospital beds are less and less occupied as people get more transactions done at doctors' offices and outpatient centers. Uh, you had some amazing statistics here uh, in your story. But more than 220 U.S. counties still have uninsured rates at or above 20 percent. That is even with Obamacare. National bed occupancy rates, that's how full the hospitals are on average any given day, are about 46 percent. So less than half of their beds are filled on any given day. That's kind of amazing. Um, And we're going to be speaking later in the program uh, with a Bloomberg intelligence analyst talking about how uh, people think that real estate, that, that retail real estate is the biggest uh, hit 
this year. It's actually hospital-related real estate because these hospitals are at risk of going out of business. Dave, uh, within the hospital sector, has there been a big laggard or is there someone who people watch to get a sense of how this entire industry is is going? Well, I mean, clearly, if you're talking about the hospital stocks, HCA being the biggest company in the industry represents your, your bellwether. And yesterday was one of the best performers in the S&P 500, if not the best. Today, it's the second worst. So, you know, it goes to show you things do have a way of kind of swinging back and forth. I mean, especially after a big day like what we saw yesterday. You know, beyond that, I mean, it really does become an issue of do you see the uh, concerns that are facing the companies that actually are involved in this business play out in terms of the the real estate investment trusts that uh, are involved as well. I mean, we've certainly seen that happening in retailing with the issues of department store chains and so on, having a carryover to the retail REITs. So, you know, it's a matter of whether that sort of uh, daisy chain, you might say, gets linked up again. Catherine, uh, some of these anecdotes in your story, did you actually travel to Big Bend in Texas to to look around and see what was going on? Or did did you take a tour of some of these hospitals? Yeah, so uh, my uh, colleague, John Lowerman, who shared a byline with me, he was reporting on Big Bend. Um, I talked to Cure Health, uh, based in Tennessee, which owns three hospitals in Alabama. None of what, I'm, and Alabama didn't expend Medicaid, so none of those hospitals are you know getting those benefits. Um, and that was done on, on, over the phone, although uh, I did get invited to Alabama, and I would love to go. So we'll so see. So maybe, maybe you'll be reporting with us uh, from Alabama. Catherine Greyfield, thank you so much for joining us. She's a healthcare reporter for Bloomberg News, and she's joining us at our Bloomberg 1130 studio. And Dave Wilson, as always, thank you so much for joining us. Bloomberg Stocks columnist and blogger on MLive Go. And clearly, this just serves to remind uh, everyone, I mean, including myself, that we all talk so much about the GOP's plan for healthcare and Obamacare, but uh, the problems are vast and go far beyond a specific uh, legislative plan and go to a structural problem uh, within healthcare. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.